I'm walking down a lane in Gloucestershire near the town of Stroud and I can hear sheep and lambs. It's a May morning and we're going to meet one of the standard bearers of English instrumental music, Sam Sweeney, fiddle player who has played with so many bands, Leverett, Eliza Carthy's Wayward Band, Bellowhead of course, but then struck out on his own with some remarkable solo albums. We're going to hear the stories of those. But there's one thing I've been really, really missing during the lockdown, and that is getting into a pub and hearing a bunch of musicians giving their all. And today, that's going to happen, because we're going to meet up with Sam in the Prince Albert in Stroud, and he's brought some friends with him. was the most upbeat start to an episode of Folk on Fort we've ever had and I nearly I nearly danced. <laughs> it was so wonderful. Sam Sweeney, Miranda Writer, Rob Harbron, thank you so much for that. Here we are, Sam, in your local pub. 
Absolutely. The Prince yeah. Albert. Yeah. Um, and we're in the courtyard with a lovely vase of tulips behind your yellow tulips behind your head there and a great big sign that says, Welcome to the Prince Albert, banish your hunger, quench your thirst, which I may actually take advantage of in a moment. <laughs> uh, tell us about this place, Sam, and, and what goes on here. Is it, is it a venue for live music? Absolutely. I mean, pre-COVID, I mean, the Prince, the Prince Albert really is like the place for live music in Stroud. I mean, they have music most, well, they did have music most nights of the week. But yeah, I mean, they have all genres, uh, all kinds of music here. And it's, a, it's just a brilliant local. And uh, I moved about half a mile away a year ago and it's just brilliant to call this to call this my local and be able to come and have a pint here and it's a really it's a big community place do you have you guys been able to play here at all during the lockdown in a socially distanced way we were very lucky actually um because the pub closes on tuesdays and in between lockdowns one and two how many have there been one and <laughs> one and two um we were um yeah lottie and miles who own the pub they allowed us to come here um, and and play in a socially distanced manner, and also Boss Morris, who are our local fantastic Morris team. They sort of had costume making sessions whilst we sat in the other half of the room just playing tunes for three or four hours and having lovely beer. So that really, in the last year and a half, this place was a, a real lifeline for us in the the dark autumn winter mm. nights. Being able to come here and just jam, yeah. uh, just well, like just like we just did. Would you play another set of tunes for us? Sure, yeah. So if you can just imagine, Morris dancers are here in their fabulous costumes. So Sam, you've brought us to a farm now on the outskirts of, of Stroud. In fact, we're in the middle of a, a garden here, a productive garden. Yeah. Why have you brought us here? I've brought you to Stroud Slad Farm, which is where I uh, lived for three and a half years. Um, and as you can see, it's a totally beautiful, beautiful place. And the, the sort of surroundings of this farm proved to be incredibly inspirational uh, to me at a really important time of my life. <laughs> How did you end up here in this particular farm? Um, it's a funny story. <laughs> um, I was living uh, up in the Peak District and at the time I was playing with Eliza Carthy and the Wayward Band and we had a recording session in a place called The Convent in South Woodchester, just on the other side of Stroud. And um, I turned up and I walked into the venue and the man who owned it said... You must be Sam Sweeney. Would you like to live here and be our artist in residence? And I sort of thought that was quite bizarre, but um, I sort of said, well, sure, that would be nice. But my partner really likes to grow vegetables. And he sort of said, well, there's a field there. Grow as many vegetables as you like and you can live here for free as our artist in residence. Well, it sounds like a fantastic <laughs> offer. It was an attractive place to live. Incredible old convent that had been done up into a bar, venue, restaurant, hotel. I mean, it was rather ill-fated in the end. I lived there for 10 months and then um, and the whole thing sort of shut down. And then in desperation to find somewhere to live, we ended up looking for a, a B&B to stay in whilst we found somewhere. And the only place that was available on that day was here. <laughs> um, and I turned up, got out my car, and lovely Paul, he, the, farmer. Uh, the farmer, yeah, he he greeted us and he saw my fiddle case coming out the car and he said do you play the violin and I said yeah yeah it's my job and uh, he said what do you play and I said well I play folk music and his face lit up and he said oh do you mean like Seth Lakeman 
And I said, well, I guess, I guess so, kind <laughs> of, bit. you know. Um, come up and I'll teach you how to play a Seth Lakeman song. So we sort of hit it off immediately and we sort of became really good friends. And when we checked out of the, of the B&B, he just said, look, my son's moving out of this bungalow in two, three months. If you can wait that long, it's up for rent. Um, and it was perfect, really. It was a, the timing was absolutely perfect. So I lived there and ended up writing a load of music there and in these woods and up Swifts Hill where we're about to go. And my girlfriend could grow as many vegetables as she possibly could on Here the farm. In the community so, garden. Yeah, absolutely. Is, looks incredibly productive, actually. There's it's glorious. Of... It really is. Yeah. So where are we going now? Through these, these we are going to, sheep? We're going to just vault this fence, vault that gate, and we're going to go up through that gate into the woods. OK, great. Cool. I want to make it clear to all our listeners that we have got permission from the farmer to climb we, over these gates. We have, absolutely. We're not just breaking in. No. So we're going to climb up here because Stroud is in this sort of valley, isn't it? Um, it is, yeah, five valleys really. Um, so we're in the Slad Valley. I currently live in the Woodchester Valley that goes down to Nailsworth and towards Bath. Um, but yeah, five valleys. So it's quite, when we get to the top of Swift Hill, you'll be able to really get a sense of the geography of Stroud. I'm pleased to see you've brought your, your fiddle with you. Yeah. Would you tell me about the fiddle? Where did you get that from? When I was a kid, uh, I took up the fiddle at the age of six. Um, I mean, for two reasons, I suppose. The first was that my lovely friend from primary school played the fiddle and I fancied a go. And her mum taught me how to play Twinkle Twinkle Star, uh, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, after school one day. But I guess the other main reason I, I wanted to play the fiddle was... Uh, Dave Swarbrick um, and my dad, his record collection was, I mean it was very eclectic actually, I mean I have him to blame for my love of the Eagles and ZZ Top and stuff like that, but he listened to a lot of Fairport Convention and Steel Eye Span and that sort of thing. And I remember seeing Swarb a few times as a kid actually. And I was lucky enough to... A few times as a kid? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, there you are at age seven. Yeah. And you went to see... What, did you see him play on his own or with Martin Carthy or in a Fairport convention? I saw or... him play with Fairport at Cropperty quite a few times. Uh, saw him play with Kev Dempsey. Um, but it was just something about the his wild style compared to what I was learning in school, in classical lessons at school, that just really appealed. Right, let's vault get this gate. Over we? another gate. And then this is the last difficult bit. Until we get to the barbed wire, but that's about half an hour away. So I can't tell you how much I identify with that story about Dave Swarbrick. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, because we're a different generation. Yeah. I have to say, you're much younger than I am. But in the 1970s, mm. I was learning the classical violin at oh, really? school, yeah, and oh. uh, taking my grade five exam, yeah. and thinking this is really tedious. I, really <laughs> don't, I can't stand doing this. Yeah. And then I heard this album called Legion Leaf by Purple Convention, yeah. and I thought, that's what a violin can do. Yeah. Dave Swarbrick's playing on that album, and so I started a little folk band. Okay. And uh, I, I started to play uh, folk tunes and. So on because of Dave Swarbrick. Yeah, um, yeah. But you got to meet him, I think. I did. So there's a website called Bright Young Folk, um, and they, they did a few interviews where they're called In Their Footsteps, I think. This is about 10 years ago now. Um, and I was invited to interview my hero. Um, and although, like nowadays, stylistically and stuff, I mean, I don't really sound anything like Dave, but believe me, when I was a kid, I, I really did. And it was incredible, so I went to Dave's house, and of course, because he, he had the double lung transplant, I don't know if you know this, but his obituary was published in the Telegraph before he died. I do know this, because I interviewed him about it. Oh, did you? Because I present an obituary <laughs> programme on Radio 4. Okay. And I think he's the only person we've ever had on to talk about his own <laughs> obituary. <laughs> yeah, right. Did, you, did he have a copy of it Well, he did, hand? right in front of his front door. And I turned up with this massive double fiddle and viola case on my back. And I was a bit, a bit nervous to meet my hero. And then I not managed to knock his obituary off the wall and smash it on the floor. <laughs> uh, so I was, that was the first oh, 30 dear. seconds of meeting Dave. There's a great story about that, you know, which he told me, which was that he used to, because um, he was a bit short of cash, mm. he used to sign them and sell them at gigs. 
Yeah. Um, but then the Telegraph sent him a letter, having prematurely published his obituary. They sent him a letter <laughs> saying, "You are infringing our copyright. Can you please stop doing that?" <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, so yeah. So did, did you play fiddle with him then? Yeah, it was great. I took my fiddle along, which at the time I was playing this First World War violin, and then we played some tunes together. And then he asked if he could play my First World War fiddle. And he sort of played it, and he was so deaf at the time, and it's quite a quiet fiddle, that one. And he sort of grimaced at this violin and said, I've, I've got a fiddle that could eat this one up. And he toddled off to his bedroom, and underneath his bed he sort of kept all his fiddles. And he brought back this one, which is on my back right now. And I played it, and it's just an extraordinary violin. Amazing and it was, in what way? High volume? High volume, wonderful tone. <laughs> yeah, it's just a very beautiful thing. And it was made for Dave by a guy called Michael Burnham in the 90s. And everything that Swab did, I guess, for the last 10 or 15 years of his life, he, he played and recorded on this, on this fiddle. So, so how come you've got it then? Well, he was... In these last sort of few years of life, I, I met up with him a few times. Um, and he developed this big obsession with Baroque music and the sort of crossover between Baroque and folk tunes. Um, and he just had decided that this fiddle wasn't the right thing for that. And he'd moved on to this other violin and didn't play this one anymore, but he wanted somebody to play it. So he said I could take it home for a bit. And if I loved it, I could, I could buy it off him. So I did. And it's great. And the cool thing is, so cleaning violins is notoriously difficult. Um, but inside this fiddle, when I got it, this is a bit gross. There's a dust ball. It's sort of like, really? Uh, which I can only imagine. What, Dave's dust? It's Dave, bits of Dave's dry skin and hair and oh, stuff. But I've never, I, whenever my violin gets serviced, I say, please, don't, don't clean don't out the middle. that. Because that's, you know, like, if you get rid of the, the sort of this dust ball of, of Dave Swarbrick, the spirit of the violin might disappear. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Having talked about the violin, I wonder if we yeah. could hear it. Of course, yeah. And we're at a spot here which has got um, a really nice bench. Yeah. And a view. Yeah, for sure. Would, would it be a place we would play for us? Absolutely, yeah. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, I used to sit here quite a lot. When Have I you played here before? I've never brought the fiddle into the woods. Right. I did a lot of, a lot of writing and arranging uh, just in my head walking. When I was sort of doing the unfinished violin and unearth repeat the second record i would just come up come up there and just walk and walk and walk and, and riffs and tunes and stuff would just be going round so an enormous amount of my stuff is sort of done in my head first and then i'd go back down to the farm and sort of demo it up right um so what what are you going to play for us one of those tunes that came to you in these woods i could do yeah the bit of woodland just down there is called proud grove and i was walking down there a couple of years ago, and I this tune came into my head. I haven't played it for a while, actually. but um, So it's just called Proud Grove, but it was a thing that came into my head literally 400 yards down there. Oh, that would be wonderful. Um, so I'll give that a go. Um, yeah, if you look inside there... Let me see Dave's dust. The Hail Bop, made for Dave Swarbrick, my Michael Burnham. Oh, yeah, it's written inside. Yeah, yeah. it's wonderful. So there you go. Pretty cool. And he always put his chin on the wrong side. Which is why there's a big a change in colour of there's varnish a, a there. Because yes. he was so yeah. deaf, he had to put his chin there and put his ear like so that. So he could feel the vibrations from the violin through his I guess, ear. and just and just get his ear as close to the fiddle as possible <laughs> so he could hear it. Um, yeah. So this is Proud Grove, which is a tune that popped into my head just down there.
It's just a little thing, like it just came into my head. It's not a. It's just, but it's interesting that um, I wanted to ask you about the kind of differences between things that you write and things mm. that you take from the tradition and um, whether you see a difference between those two things or, or whether you're just continuing something really that's been going on for hundreds of years. Yeah, my answer to that would, would, has very much changed as I've, as I've got older. Um, I think when I, when I really got into English trad music as a teenager, I would have sort of told you that, you know, Playford's Dancing Master was the Bible and we mustn't touch it. And it, and it sort of, it was a burden and a cross to bear. And, you know, we're, we're tradition bearers and all this kind of nonsense. And then actually in the last few years, especially writing tunes, which I struggled with a lot when I was a teenager. But now I just, I just kind of feel that uh, there's that thing, Hugh Lupton, the storyteller who I worked with a bit, amazing man, and he... He has that thing of when you tell a story, uh, if you, you've got the ghosts of all these people who've told it before you on stage, and if you, if you tell it exactly the same as people have told it before, you'll hear the sound of spectral snoring. And if you, go, if you diverge too far from it, you'll get a, a, a ghostly dig in the ribs kind of thing. But I, I love that because I just like the thought of you know, hundreds of people, you know, hundreds of years worth of people just coming up with a little melody and they were delighted, you know, and if, if someone else learned it, then they'd be delighted with that. And I think there's so much heaviness put on tradition and where things came from and source and all this stuff, whereas actually if we all just start thinking of it as this wonderful communal <laughs> repertoire, this sort of gift that's been given to us to 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 discover and we're just adding to that treasure trove. So I'm... I, I'm much less heavy about it than I used to be. It, yeah, I find a lot more joy in adding to tradition than I than I used to. Yeah. Do you want to put the fiddle away and we'll carry on yeah, walking? Because we've got a, we've got a track ahead of us. So there you are as a teenager, influenced by Dave Swarbrick, getting into the English tradition. Yeah. How did you get into Bellowhead and, and at such a young age? <laughs> um, yes, I, I'm constantly aware how abnormal I am and how lucky I've been. <laughs> um, but the, still, in fact, there are these things called Folkworks Summer Schools, which are these brilliant, brilliant summer schools for kids up in Durham, and they happen every summer. Um, with, with folk tutors from all over the world. And when I was 16 or 17, I can't remember, John Bowden was one of the fiddle tutors. And part of those courses is you get lessons from someone and you also get put in a band led by a, a, a well-known folk musician. So I was in Bowden's band and I just remember him saying to me in one of the breaks, um, I've just formed this big band called Bellowhead, um, but the fiddle player who also plays the bagpipes um, often has to depth the gigs out. Um, do you play a, a woodwind instrument? And I said no. And that was the last I, I heard of it, really. And then when I was 18, I got this voicemail from John Bowden whilst I was in school, just going, Sam, John Bowden here, I'm just driving up the M1. Would it be all right to drop my bagpipes in your parents' greenhouse? Um, you've got six weeks to learn them for the reopening of the Southbank Centre. Um, <laughs> which is pretty nuts. I mean, imagine that as an 18-year-old. So I did. So I learned the... You learned the bagpipes in six weeks. I mean, when I say learned them, you know, I sort of learned the three things I had to learn for the gig. Um, but yeah, I did it and then played the reopening of the Southbank with Bellahead and then did half of their autumn tour that year. And then Giles Lewin, who I was depping for, he actually left that Christmas. Um, so I got a phone call saying, we're off to write the second Bellahead album in Wales. Do you want to join full time? So I was still 18 just when I joined Bellahead full time. And that was 
And that was that, really. It's quite an entree into the world of professional music making, it, isn't it? Extraordinary, really. It's like going in at the top. Yeah, it really, it really yeah. was. It was amazing. And, and those gigs it. were events, extraordinary events. Mm. Uh, I wonder what it was like, because from the audience's point of view, it was a high-energy experience. Yeah. It must have been, for you, a high-energy experience on the stage, wasn't it? People always asked us, you know, how on earth did we keep up the energy leaping off speaker stacks and pogoing and, and, and all that stuff? But, you know, it wasn't an act. It really was, it was a two-way relationship. If the crowd went wild, we went even wilder. And it really was, um, I mean, God, I was a lot fitter then than I am now. <laughs> <laughs> Do you miss it now? I, mean, oh. I know you got back together again in the lockdown, but without yeah. an audience. So yeah. that must have been a slightly less exciting prospect. Yeah, it, it was lovely. Really, really lovely. But I, I miss it so much. I think the thing is when you spend, especially the last three or four years of Bellhead was crazy. I mean, after Hedonism came out and we started playing really big venues and living on a tour bus, and it was one year we did 60 gigs, which is, you know, it's a sixth of the year in a tiny tour bus with, with 11 people. And they really did become closer than family. Very dysfunctional family, don't get me <laughs> wrong, but like, you know, a, a family nonetheless. So I really miss that. And I, I just enormously miss the the gigs and the whole seeing 2,000, 2,500 people going crazy. Um, yes, of course I miss it, and nothing will ever replace it for me. Um, but I wonder if it was through Bellahead that you came into contact with the violin, which became the subject of your solo project. Absolutely, yes. So um, John Bowden and Paul Sartin had both bought violins from a wonderful man called Roger Claridge. Um, who's got a fiddle shop in Oxford and he also, he's a lovely player of folk tunes um, and they said you should just go to visit Roger if you want a new violin, he's got wonderful wonderful instruments so I did and I, I went down and he just said look here's all the instruments, play all of them I'm going out to my shed, you play all of them um, see if you like any of them and I whittled it down to this one violin which I immediately fell in love with and I was quite surprised that I fell in love with it because it was brand new. Um, and often, you know, it's, it's harder to fall in love with brand new fiddles because the sound develops so much over, over years. But anyway, I loved it. Um, and I said to Roger, can I take this one home on approval? Uh, and I'll, you know, I'll give it a good play, see what I think. Um, so I got it home and my dad, who's, he's a professional genealogist and he got incredibly excited because he looked inside the f-hole of this violin and inside it said Richard S Howard Hare Hills Leeds 1915 number six violin but, but it, it was a new violin exactly yeah so totally new obviously never played um, and the story is is that Roger Claridge's father had picked up the pieces of this violin in a paper envelope at a car boot sale for no money at all given it to Roger and said here's some pieces of a violin I got for a few quid and Roger didn't get round to assembling it um, until well 10 years later or something um, but all the pieces were complete they just hadn't been glued together and varnished and given a bridge and strings and stuff and then Roger finally got round to putting this thing together and the day that he finished it hung it up in the in the shop was the day that I went there ah. um, and it had been carved by this man, Richard Howard. I mean, Richard Howard's quite a common name, um, but the only reason we could find out it was definitely that we'd found, found the right man was because Richard had signed it inside the violin and the signature matched that on the census, the, the, this Richard Howard that we found. And on the census, it says that he was a music hall performer in Leeds uh, and he had a wife and a daughter and he was an amateur fiddle maker. I mean, I've got number six violin, and we presume that was the last one he ever made. So he'd carved it in 1915, and then he, he joined up, and he joined the Duke of Wellington's West Riding Regiment, and he went off, and he went off to Flanders, and he died on the 7th of June 1917 in the Battle of Messines, um, so, leaving behind these pieces of my fiddle. So when you'd found all this out, mm. What did you decide to do about it? I was playing with Sam Carter a little bit and I was doing a gig with him at the South Bank Centre 
and it was his agent actually that I was talking to backstage and I told her this story and she just said my god you you have to tell that to the world like that story's too good to keep to yourself so working with her we put together a, a funding bid to put together this stage show called Made in the Great War with Hugh Lupton the storyteller Rob Harbron and Paul Sartin um, and it was a slightly fictionalised version of Richard Howard's life story because we didn't know that much. But, but what, we, about, what about the music? How did you research the music that you played in that show? It was a... Well, because Richard was a music hall performer, that made it quite easy because we could look through what songs and what pieces of music were being played at the time. Um, so there was a music hall scene in the show which was highly amusing. Um, and then the regimental march of the Duke of Wellington's regiment. I mean, we were very lucky, really, because some of the regimental marches aren't the most beautiful pieces of music in the world. <laughs> but it just so happened that the Duke of Wellington's one is this glorious melody called the Wellesley. But it's lived on as well. Like the, we did a special walk um, from Ypres uh, to, um, to his grave with about 100 people the other year on the centenary of his death. And people came from all over the world. There were French people, Belgian people, people from the UK. Well, people who'd heard your album and yeah. heard the story. And yes, and then some locals as well. And we went on this walk via various important sites of that battle. It was absolutely tipping it down. And the locals had put up a little gazebo and we all had a shot of, of schnapps on the way round. And then we ended up at Richard's grave and uh, there was a lone bugle player who played the last post for him. I played the regimental march for him, and then via my dad, we found his granddaughter, and she wrote a poem for him, which she read at his grave. And literally, at the moment that we started this little ceremony, the, the clouds parted and the sun started beaming down. It was the only dry part of the entire day. But it's been probably the most significant thing that's happened to my career was finding that, that fiddle, really. It's been an amazing thing to be part of that fiddle's life. Thank you very much. There you go. So that's the Wellesley, which Richard would have marched to loads. You know, he'd have known that tune incredibly well. Now, we're about to climb the hill. 
We are. So there may be some huffing and puffing. A good degree of huffing and puffing, I think. It's <laughs> incredibly steep. It's quite steep. steep from here. But I'm, like all hills, you anticipate the summit, don't you? And you think what it's going to be like up there. I used to do this daily. I'm not as fit as I, as I was then. That was the bellowhead training, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have to get very used to hills around here. Yes. Like where I've just moved, we'll be able to see it when we get to the top, but um, sort of right in between Rodborough Common and Salisley Common. So to get anywhere beautiful, you have to walk up an incredibly steep hill. Oh, really? Well, it's already worth it. Yeah. And the other cool thing about this hill is we get glowworms in the summer. Oh, really? It's only the second place I've ever seen glowworms. I've never seen glowworms, I don't think. Oh, it's amazing. So what does it, where, do they, where are they? In the, in, just in the grass? or? In the... Yeah, on the other side of this hill, they're just in the, in the grass, in the shrubbery. We're going, We're going up there, sadly. Not sadly, it's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Happily, we're going up. Yeah. I think technically we're now on the Laurie Lee Trail. We're going to talk about Laurie Lee. Oh, are we? Well, I thought we should mention it because yeah. we're in Slad. Yeah. I know very little about him, really, but yeah, I think... Well, he set off from here, didn't he, on his famous walk yeah. in 1936 or something yeah. which turned into the book as I walked out one midsummer's morning. He's the electron yeah. slide with a violin under his arm. There you go. And uh, <laughs> it couldn't be more perfect, could it? Did, have you read the book? I haven't read the book, I'm, I'm ashamed to say. <laughs> I did read Cider with Rosie when I lived here and his grave is just over there in the village of Slad. Yeah. But it's one of the great walking books, so I'm pleased to kind of connect with the spot where he set off from. Yeah. But the house that he actually lived in was on, was on the market last year or the year before. We'll be able to see it in about 20 seconds' time. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Just coming onto the brow of the hill now, and we're, we're quite high up, and we're looking over into another valley, aren't we? So... Yeah. One valley behind us and another valley ahead of us. Yeah. So that's the village of Slad. Come left from the church, the tallish building. That's the Woolpack pub, um, which I used to go to quite a lot when I lived here. And his house is, is down there in the village? His house is just obscured by some trees, but the house he lived in is, is down there, yeah. So, yeah, and you can see the River Severn as well. So you can sort of see it glistening just in the... In the, in the gap between those hills over there. Yeah. Yeah. Right yeah. on the horizon. But yeah. it's, it's such an English sight, this, isn't it? You know, yeah. the, <laughs> the wooded side of the valley there giving way to the green yeah. of the fields and just a few cottages nestling yeah. in the bottom of the valley and then the, the village further, further away. Yeah. And we're just at that time of year, because we're in May, when the trees have got some green on them yeah. and, the, and the grass is beautifully green. There's a sort of emerald green. Yeah. I mean, you can see why it was such an amazing place to live, really. And then those buildings there, so that's Gifford Circus. Oh, wow. Um, which so that's quite a famous thing, isn't it, Gifford Circus? It's huge. a particular kind of circus. But it's so beautiful. It's a proper, proper big top thing with acrobats and acts from, from all over the world. But the coolest thing for me, so I was in charge of this thing called the National Youth Folk Ensemble, um, and... One of, the, one of the alumni from that, who's now 19 years old, I think, maybe still 18, I'm not sure, uh, he's just joined. So he's now the fiddle player in Gifford Circus and he's living in a caravan just over there. <laughs> the National Youth Folk Ensemble was an opportunity for talent spotting, I think, wasn't it? Because mm. your guitarist now, I think, came through that route, didn't he? Yeah, lovely, very talented chap called Louis Campbell. He was in the ensemble for two years, contributing some frankly amazing things to that ensemble and then... When he left and I decided I wanted two guitarists in, in a band, I sort of thought, well, this is, this is my opportunity to ask, to ask Louis, really. So I did, and he's been incredible, and it's lovely to play with him. OK, so Swift's Hill. 
So one of the themes that's come out of our conversation is your involvement in bringing on the next generation of young people and giving them some of the experiences that you had when you were learning yeah. and being mentored by people in the folk world. Yeah. And, and that's great to hear about. Um, but when I go to folk gigs, mm. so often the audience is my age or older. Yeah. And the, the people on the stage can often be quite young, yeah. but the people in the audience seem to be in their 60s, 70s and so on. Yeah. Why do you think that happens? <laughs> There's a lot of reasons, and all of this is opinion, uh, I guess. I mean, what they make, one of the main things is money, right? Young people can't afford to go to stuff. But it's particularly about folk, isn't it? Because, I mean, there are other bands, yeah. you know, there are other kinds of music that young people are finding the money to go to um, clubs or, yeah. you know, to hear in, in gigs. No, that's very true. I think the folk thing... When I got the job with the National Youth Folk Ensemble, um, I just finished Bellowhead. Bellowhead had just split up. Um, and I was, in a way, I was quite delighted that a, a significant number of the young people in the National Youth Folk Ensemble had never heard of Bellowhead or me. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because actually, they weren't there because of Bellowhead or me. They were there because they wanted to make music and communicate with each other using this, these folk tunes and stuff. And I think people spend a lot of time, myself included, wondering why young people don't go to gigs, why young people don't go to festivals and enjoy the stuff. And then the more and more I think about it and the more I talk to young people about it, I sort of want to scream gently, very gently, are you surprised? Like, honestly, are you surprised young people aren't going to these things? Like, listen to it, you know, and actually, having grown up with the folk scene, I don't hear it, I don't see it, because I know these artists, I know this music very well. But a lot of these young people I'm sort of working with now, I think, you know, if you've got young people playing in the National Youth Folk Ensemble or similar, and they, they're spending their time listening to music frankly that you or I probably haven't haven't come across or maybe we have I don't know and then you plonk them in front of something on a on a main stage at a festival it's so aesthetically I mean physically aesthetically but musically aesthetically it's just so not happening for young people it's not remotely in touch with what young people are listening to and I think we're doing badly at that in in English trad music I think places like Scotland oh that by the way is a very uh, wonderful orchid that's quite specific to this oh. to this place. Purple coloured, um, rather yeah. beautiful. There's also a snail called Ina Montana that's only specific to this hill. Oh, look out for it! <laughs> I can't see one just now, but I can definitely see that no. orchid. Yeah, 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 yeah. Quite amazing. Um, but yeah, no, I think Scot places like Scotland are doing quite well with that. If you go to Celtic Connections, there are a lot of young people there, and whether bands are succeeding to sort of engage young people because of the aesthetic of the music I don't know but they're managing to do it 
Whereas we're not. Well, it seems England. like the Scots, um, uh, it's much more intrinsic to their lives. Uh, For their sure. own music is much more intrinsic to their lives. For sure. Than English people find English music. Yeah. Is that, is that a fair point? I mean, it's a, same in Wales and same in Ireland. You know, Absolutely. The, the, the music of their culture is very much embedded in life and therefore young people come up against it Absolutely. and then some of them get involved in it yeah. and some of them reject it, but whatever. Yeah. Whereas in England, you may never come across... Yeah. something called folk or it may indeed be seen as something that is um to be laughed at or yeah. to be lampooned absolutely the vast majority of young people who audition for the national youth folk ensemble will come in playing an irish tune and then we sort of inter- we go hello we're going to play english tunes for a year and a lot of them have never come across them and i didn't encounter well if i did encounter it i wasn't aware of it that there was such a thing as English trad music until I met Chris Wood when I was 15. Um, and then he started, you know, he was in the English Acoustic Collective at the time, and then I came across people like Eliza Carthy and the Rat Catchers and Spies and Bowden, and then it was like, wow, there is English music. But if I didn't know that <laughs> as a fiddle player who'd been playing for sort of 10 years by that point, I didn't know there was English music, then it's not really surprising. I've done a couple of films in the last year where I've been hired as a Scottish fiddle player. To you play know. a Scottish fiddle player, as it were. Well, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and to play, in inverted commas, Scottish music, although it's sort of, you know, it's all newly composed. But they don't mean Scottish. What they mean is, I want a folk a fiddle tune. player yeah. who can play folky, folky, diddly-dee music. And I sort of say, well, I don't play Scottish traditional music. I don't know anything about it. And they say, oh, not be fine, because it's diddly-dee, so it's fine. <laughs> um, Nobody will be able to tell the difference. Exactly, yeah. So the, the assumption is, of course, I play the fiddle, therefore I play Irish or Celtic, or Scottish, whatever, because it's global. Whereas English music is just, I think, now going through a real resurgence. There is a real, real surge now of teenagers and people in their early 20s who are delving into old manuscripts, old collections, finding these tunes rounding off the corners, blowing the dust off, and making them now. And for me, that's incredibly exciting. And, yeah, it it excites me enormously that now we're in the sixth year of the National Youth Folk Ensemble, and there are now loads and loads of these alumni of that ensemble who are still... They might not be doing it as a job, but they're in their spare time. They're looking through old books and making new music out of old... Old music, which is cool. And why do you think it's important that that happens? Why, why is it important to connect with that music, do you think? <laughs> um, I mean, that's a very hard question. I, th- I don't, in truth, I don't, I don't think it is important that people are playing English trad music. Like, I don't... It's like I was saying earlier about the, it, it being a burden or keeping something going. We're not keeping something going. It's dead, you know. It died. It's all in books, right? So I don't think it's that important, really. But what I do think is that in, in generations gone by, this music, these dances, these songs, they enabled people to connect, right, and communicate. And that's what I think is important about these young people delving into music that's theirs. Like, it's mine, it's yours, it's theirs. And they can totally legitimately find a tune in William Winter's manuscript from 1840, round off some corners, change a little bit, and then go, this is, this is me, I'm expressing myself and I'm communicating this. So, as a vehicle for self-expression and communication, I love it. I think that's a, a beautiful thing.
Sam Sweeney at Swifts Hill. Well, if you've enjoyed this episode and you like what we do at Folk on Foot, please consider becoming a patron because we rely entirely on the support of our listeners to keep us on the road. If you do become a patron at the top level, you'll get access to the amazing Folk on Foot on Film archive with more than 100 songs and pieces of music filmed specially on location during our walks and we'll include in it the pieces of music that Sam Sweeney played in this episode. So if you'd like to sign up for that, just go to folkonfoot.com and click on the Support Us button. We'd really appreciate your support. There are now more than 60 episodes of Folk on Foot for you to enjoy, so please delve around in the back catalogue. We hope you enjoy this podcast as much as we enjoy making it. <laughs>